It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King Quarantine Week 6. How's my man, Torin? Hey, we're good. And let me tell you, we got some good energy today because we have had some incredible conversations over the last couple of weeks. I know I want to see the shout out to Hung Lee. That dude has been epic over the last like three weeks or so. Uh, But he allowed and invited Julie and I to participate on recruiting brain food. And we got to talk about uh, DNI and post pandemic and, and how could we hit the reset button and all of that. And like literally Julie, that energy from last week is rolled over into this week. And so I'm excited. I feel great. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And and definitely to, to hung for the recruiting brain food. I'm telling you what, after that conversation, my LinkedIn like blew up and, uh, you know, and here we are just talking about the things that we love and it's resonating with people in such a unique way, even during this pandemic. Like it was uber energizing, um, just kind of, you know, lifted my spirits since I can't see everyone. And it was, of course, wonderful to to see your face on camera. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that actually brings up a point, you know, the, the, the conversation has been or shall I say the suggestion has been made um that we do something similar, that you and I began to video record our conversations and then let an individual pull the track out to create the pod so that we have both the visual and the audible or audible and the visual. So uh, I'm certainly willing to give it some consideration. I'm not asking us to change everything yet in 2020, uh, but, you know, we got some time. And so maybe we can have one of those off the record conversations, you know? Yeah, I've actually had a few people suggest the same to me, so I'm I'm definitely open to it, and I think um, it will energize ourselves, you know, each other as we talk and, and interact, and it will um, make the conversations more dynamic. So let's let's ponder on it. How about that? And then you know, I think I may find I may start a crazy and the king GoFundMe, uh, and and let's see if we can get people to donate <laughs> to a crazy and the king GoFundMe. So I could wear a different hat in every episode. What do you think about that? Okay. I like hats. I need a gimmick now. So I'll have to think of one, but I like hats. I always like it when you wear hats on stage. Awesome. 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 So look, we're going to talk this week uh, about one thing. Julie and I normally will will spend some time digging into the media and to news platforms to, to maybe find a DNI related story. Uh, that's happening real time in somebody's workplace somewhere in the country or in the world. But in this particular uh, episode, we're going to focus on uh, a report that was dropped uh, last week or maybe even two weeks ago by McKenzie and company. And they do a yeoman's job of doing research, putting teams together uh, to, to, to coalesce around subject matter, around content. Uh, and so this report is titled COVID-19 investing in black lives and livelihoods. Now, I got to tell you, when I read the report, Julie, I really don't know how you felt, but I'm going to tell you, Torin Ellis was angry. And I was angry and frustrated for a myriad of reasons. How'd you feel either after reading the title and or just the report? 
Yeah. Um, I was angry. And I think as a, as a white person, we need to be exposing ourselves to these kind of reports on the regular. It's so easy to kind of get blinded by everything that we're going through individually and starting to see the impact on Black lives and the Black community on the news. This report, even just in like the introduction pages, really brought home why this needs to be a topic that we don't stop talking about post-COVID because it's really um, in a very cohesive way showing us how this pandemic is exploiting the, the broken system that we already have for the Black community in this country. Yeah. And Julie said something about we can get myopic, we can become individualized and think about our scenario. And sometimes we can get burdened, you know, and consumed by that. And trust me when I tell you, I understand. I am not in any way uh, Pollyannish, if you will, in suggesting that individuals absolutely operate with disregard for their family uh, over the concerns of a black and brown community, over the concerns of a community of people with disabilities or any other. I recognize uh, the need for one to care for family. Julie and I are simply talking about the duality of life, uh, the complexity of life, and that we can really be thinking about much more than just what's happening in our scenario. Martin Luther King said it best. He says, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? What are we doing for others? So Julie mentioned the introduction. Let me just jump right in. The report again came out April uh, of this year. Second paragraph. Let me read this. The pandemic will impose an additional burden on black Americans who already deal with a vicious cycle of structural barriers and disadvantages. Analysis shows that as a group, black Americans have worse health outcomes and are less likely to build wealth due to factors such as under-resourced community institutions, poor environments for investment, lower rates of career advancement, overrepresentation in lower wage jobs, and a lack of inclusion in the financial system. Here's the piece that I need you to take away. These factors make black Americans more susceptible to the health and economic effects of the pandemic, even though they are among the most poorly positioned to surmount the challenges, a double bind. Here's the challenge. I recognize that a lot of this we do have control over. That's where the phrase personal responsibility comes into play. I'm not a guy who sits on a perch and says that everything needs to be done for other people. I'm not the dude that says that I'm willing to give anyone necessarily a pass. I have very, very direct and raw and hard conversations around diversity and inclusion with any audience. I don't give a damn where I am. There is not a microphone that I'm afraid of, and there's not a person sitting in any audience that I'm afraid of. Like I absolutely am confident in who I am and the message that I'm going to deliver. And so, yes, there are a number of people that need to take advantage and take responsibility around how are they shaping uh, and pursuing a better health regimen. Julie, uh, I smile. You don't even know this, but I smile because you get out and you ran. You ran two miles uh, last week in like 21 minutes. And I was like, damn it. 
I did tw- two miles in 27 minutes. You know, difference. I get it, but I'm out there doing something. You know what I mean? I'm competing with myself. My 27 minutes was better than my 30 minutes three weeks ago. I may not be at 21, but I'm at 27 and I'm doing something. And so what I know is that we can have personal responsibility conversations all day long, but we have to have some conversations around public policy as well. And we cannot and never ignore the fact that institutionally and systemically, there have been barriers and systems that have been put in place that have prevented, that have handcuffed, that have choked black and brown people in ways that white folks would never understand. And what we think about what happened in 2008 and and, and that economic collapse and the fact that many people say, Julie, that black and brown people are just regaining their footing from what happened in 2008. Like when I say just, I'm talking within the last 12, 18, 24 months are just regaining their footing to only now have a report that says that they are poorly positioned to surmount the challenges. And it's important to Torn, I appreciate and acknowledge your your conversation about personal responsibility, but there are just as many white folks that need to take that same personal responsibility. Like that's an across the board conversation. Absolutely. And, but we as, as a white community have allowed that bias and that scapegoating behavior or, or that scapegoating to drive our behavior and our bias for far too long. That if black men just did this, if black man men just did this, if a black woman just did this, that's bullshit. Absolutely. And when things are structurally built to confine you, the the lie and the myth of meritocracy does not compute in this conversation. And so I I, I feel you and I appreciate what you're saying. Um, I just want to make sure that from a white perspective, I say to the other white listeners, like, don't let that stop the way that you're hearing this conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And that conversation of personal responsibility, public policy, it hits every last one of us. You know, as we say in the, in the streets, it lands differently. That joint hits differently. It hits in every single one of us. It lands on every single one of us, but you're right. Those pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all those other little uh, toy type phrases are, you know, listen, no time for that. And and the one thing that I am absolutely adamant about, if, if, if we can get through this pandemic and we will, I do not want to have, I said it uh, on, on social media. I absolutely do not apologize for it. When we get through this pandemic, what I want to see happen is that we do not allow mediocre white men people with privilege and individuals that are afraid that are complacent, black and brown people. I don't want those three individuals sitting at any table of decision-making period. Get these jokers out of the equation. You don't have to leave the company, but you should not be making decisions that impact individuals inside of our thriving organizations, our growing concerns, our communities that we are shaping People that are operating with disregard and a a lack of care and concern for all people should not be at the decision-making table. Check this out, page number six. Um, And and I'm just going to sum this up. I'm not going to read it, but it says that 65% of black Americans live 
in 16 states, most of which rank in the bottom half of all states in healthcare access, public health, and healthcare quality. 65%. So my question is, well, which states are these? It's easy. I'm, I'm, I'm really throwing out rhetorical questions. You know, quick Google search, Julie. How have they been governed over the last 20, 30, 50 years and by whom? And what is it going to take? And that's the reason why I said mediocre white men, people with privilege and complacent and or silent black and brown people. Because if I'm one of the 65 percent that lives in one of those 16 states, you can best sure believe that I'm showing up at city council meetings. I'm showing up at school board meetings. I'm showing up at uh, anything where my voice can be exercised. And trust me now when I tell you, I am no way suggesting that people are not down there rattling the wagon and they're not beating the drum. I'm not in any way suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is that we need more of you rattling the wagon and beating the drum. It's not been enough. That's what I'm getting. I, I, I want listeners to take away from our exchange today. It has not been enough. We have not done it with the level of intensity and persistence required. We will do old school things like marching. And I suppose those things have a place in the equation. But economically, we have not made a statement. White people, black people, uh, Indian people, Hispanic people, people with disabilities. We have not coalesced together and made a major statement. There is no reason why any state in these United States is operating with poor health, lack of access to health care. Uh, th there's just absolutely no excuse for that. It's America. Yeah. It's by choice. Absolutely. It, it absolutely is. I, you know, and Torn, what really stood out to me while we're talking about kind of that larger diversity picture um, was the exhibit two about Black Americans being overrepresented in nine of the 10 lowest wage jobs yep. um, that are both high contact and essential services. And there's been a lot of conversation in my community, and, and we're starting to even see some of it on um, news and, and opinion programs about how people with disabilities have been left out of the thought process and the solution for um, or with the, the stimulus packages that have been coming through Congress. And that's been something that as a person with a disability, I've been hyper aware of. And then when I was reading um, this, this document, the study that you put in front of me, and I realized that those black Americans who are in those high contact positions are providing services very often to people with disabilities, um, people who are elderly, people who need medicine, um, in very important jobs that we are not thinking about on a regular basis, psychiatric um, aides, nursing assistants, pharmacy aides, child care workers, pharmacy techs, medical assistants, critically important jobs to staying alive, staying healthy. And I had to, to kind of step back and went like, oh, shit, this isn't just an assault on on my community uh, or just, you know, a, a complete indifference on the value of a human life if you have a disability. 
but the specific careers that support people with very significant disabilities are predominantly uh, black essential or provided by black people in essential jobs. And I think that's important to understand how that overlap has happened. And for us as, as disabled people to recognize that there can be counter assaults that are happening with other communities that we need to band together to have those conversations. Absolutely. Because if we can keep one another at odds, if we can keep, you know, myself fighting for something and, and not necessarily aligning and banding with people from your community, then that allows them to continue to be happy. The robber bearers continue to do what it is yep. that they do. You know, I smile, I think about, uh, you know what? I won't even go there. Uh, it, it, it allows us to think about, you know, you, it, it allows us to take our eye off of what is being done. And when you mention those positions, uh, those frontline positions in Exhibit 2, uh, it's important for our listeners to understand that in this study, they talk about 39 percent of the jobs held by black workers, which equates to about seven million jobs, are vulnerable to reductions in hours, pay, furloughs or permanent layoffs. Now, I don't know what the hell a permanent layoff is, but it sounds to me like fire. Uh, that's what it sounds to me yeah. like. And, and, exactly. and so when we have these conversations, when you are thinking about individuals who are scratching, clawing, trying to get in corporate America, when you have individuals that have graduated with four year degrees, six years of study, student debt, uh, when you have individuals that have done everything that, you know, we say is the formula for the American dream, and yet the most that they can do or the most that is offered to them or the most that they are able to achieve because someone is standing above them and not allowing them to, to ascend, not supporting them in their ascension, is that they are in, in frontline employment. You'll never get me to believe, you will never get me to believe that People that are in frontline positions, 39% of those individuals that are uh, African-American or black only aspire to be in that role. I did a study. Uh, I'm sorry, not a study. I did a presentation. Julie, this dates me back to like 2006 or seven, And I cannot for the life of me remember where this data point came from. But what it said was that for every, for every, uh, uh, $10,000 you see in compensation, there's a decrease of 7% in representation. So if I make 20 and then I go up to 30, you're going to see across the board a lack of uh, representation, a drop of like 7%. And it's clear when we think about Fortune 500 CEOs, when we think about the highest level of leadership in our executive suite, when we think about our boards of directors, who do we see? And so it's not as if you can argue with the numbers. And that's what really infuriates me and pisses me off is because we got these smart asses who will sit up here and say that we are crying and complaining. And that is not the case. It may be the case for some people but I am sitting up here saying you all believe the data when the data supports some of the bullshit that you are trying to do or put across. But you don't want to believe the data when the data is impacting people. And all we care about is people. I'm not asking for you to give me something. I'm not asking for you to uh, step out of the way so that I, all I'm saying is let's just play the game the right way and let's 
work together so that we don't have, you know, an inordinate amount of black and brown people that are about to experience an economic and health related calamity that we may not recover from for another 20 or 30 years. Yep. You hit the first, let me say this. I would like this Torin to show up to every podcast because I love on fire Torin. Second, um, I think you hit the nail right on the head and something else that really, really jumped out at me um, in one of the kind of big, bold letterings um, in the in the study was that national philanthropic organizations can channel the urgency created by the pandemic. And I, I agree with that. But just as like you and I were talking with with Hung and we talk about a lot on this show is that when the main focus of our inclusion, the main focus that we have on populations that are not like us is philanthropic. We create that stereotype. We further that bias of seeing it as charity, as socialism, as crying and whining. As white people and and white women, I think, especially though I'll speak for my, my, my group, um, we have to recognize that as a country, we are not going to move forward in the way that we should be moving forward if Black people are not rising at the same levels that we are. And I don't mean at the same levels in terms of you go up 5%, I go up 5%. I mean, you get to come up to where we are, and then we move together. This is a, a systemic issue that we have allowed to create a conversation of pity and charity and that is bullshit we are failing as a nation we are failing as white people for our children for our grandchildren when we are not helping to bring up all of the boats to an equitable place so that we can leverage and and that i mean that sounds bad but what i'm saying is how can we leverage every member of this country to make us the best country that we can be financially, economically, socially, everything. We cannot do it by ourselves. And we've continued to allow these stereotypes that have been imprinted in our brains, not just for black people, but for brown people, for disabled people, um, that we only need to be acknowledged when we are taking your charity. Yeah. And, you know, when Julie talks about charity, uh, I mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. You know, I think about the, the, the letter that Larry Fake wrote to his shareholders in uh, December of 2018. And Larry Fink is the CEO of BlackRock, $6 trillion uh, investment firm, if not the largest, certainly one of the largest investment firms in the entire world. And, And basically what he said, Julie, and for our listeners is that what he, what he said to his leadership is that this organization being BlackRock is not going to look the same five years from, from now, uh, and, and that everyone needed to make it important. They needed to make it a part of their way of leadership that diversity and inclusion was included in such. And I got to tell you, he was raked over the coals by a number of individuals. People said that he was misusing his uh, position and his power, that from his perch, he was trying to push corporate socialism. Uh, and so, you know, here it is, uh, an individual that is inside of a respected organization by many, uh, certainly 
uh, a successful organization by, uh, you know, all stretches of imagination, if you will. And, and people are accusing him of corporate socialism because he's pursuing inclusion and representation. And so what we know is that this is not an easy conversation. What we know is that this is not something that is going to happen just simply because you are willing it uh, to be. You have to be willing to put in some work. We need listeners who are going to be out there and share our podcast. We need listeners who are going to be uh, in a position to ask inside of their organization, what are we doing around DNI? We need listeners that are going to say, what are our ERGs doing internally and externally? We need listeners who are going to challenge their organization to say, we need to make sure that we are pushing intentionally for diversity, equity, inclusion, and representation through all business units and departments inside of the organization, not just another press release, not just stroking another check to a nonprofit. We don't necessarily need the philanthropy. We appreciate it. We embrace it, but we need absolutely much more than that. We need you to be serious about making sure that when we come out of this pandemic, we are looking at a different type of business. What this has shown us is that people can work remotely and can be successful if they are supported. What this has shown us is that we can put people on a new paradigm to grow in and taking care of their families. What this has shown us is that our government needs to do a bit more. They need to look at just, not just uh, putting a stimulus package in place, but they need to look at a moratorium on uh, people's mortgages and rent and some of these other things. We need to look at the structural barriers inside of these organizations. I can go on and on and on, but what I don't want is to be infuriated like this report made me. I'm tired of reading these reports seeming as if black and brown people don't have their shit together because that ain't the case. That's not the case. And as Julie said at the top of the conversation, for every black person that you point to that says they're on welfare or that they're on food stamps or that their children are not doing uh, well in school or that this or that, 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 I can go to a white neighborhood and point the and, and point out the very same example. This is not about pointing fingers. This is simply about saying we have not lived up to our responsibility of being humans. And I'm asking each and every one of you to do that going forward. So we will put the report on our uh, link in our note show notes, sorry, and we'll definitely put it out on Facebook. It is worth the time to read. I printed it out. I highlighted it. I thank you, Torin, for um, leading in this discussion and, and helping me to learn um, and to be more aware, which we, we all need to be doing. And so I think this is a great place to, to wrap up quarantine week six. I think we have some name drops this week, Tor. Do you, do you have some? Absolutely. I just want to shout out uh, Jahan and Boyan over at Project Inkblot. You can find them online at projectinkblot.com. Uh, they are an organization. They play in this DNI space, team of designers and futurists, and they actually partner with companies to help them build equitable products, uh, services, and content using design for diversity. I love them. They're up in New York City. They do incredible work, projectinkblot.com. Awesome. And my name drop is to our newest member of the Crazy and the King family, uh, DJ Stills. Um, officially want to just uh, give him a name drop, Marcel, for 
producing the uh, smooth sounds that you hear from Torn and I every week. I think he's been doing this for basically almost since the start of the quarantine episode. So, and he's doing a great job. So thanks, Marcel. We really appreciate it. And we're, we're excited to have you uh, producing our content. Actually, truth of the matter is he's been a part of Crazy and the King from the very start. He uh, gave us our music that we use True. in uh, 2019. And, and what we did was we brought him on board in 2020 to help us put the shows together. And and as he gets comfortable with uh, the cadence that Julie and I have, our rhythm, uh, our exchanges back and forth, we hope to grow the platform, grow the pod, continue to give you all great content, provide you with some advertisers and people that are offering some good services. So we appreciate you, Marcel, for joining the team. Absolutely. So who uh, who is the guest for your Sirius XM show this week? Do you know yet? I don't know. Actually, you know what? I think I think next week is going to be the chief diversity officer for Intuit, Mr. Scott Beth. Um, I, I, I'm almost positive that that's who's going to be up with me on Sirius XM. And as a matter of fact, uh, for those of you who might be new uh, to the podcast, you can catch me each and every Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m on Sirius XM channel 126. That's 1 p.m. Eastern, Sirius XM channel 126, where we talk about career development, diversity, and disruption. We do it in a way that no one else is doing. Take us home. And so, of course, Julie's silent, so that means she ain't got nowhere to go. She ain't got nowhere to be. She ain't packing no bags. Uh, all that is is, Torm, make sure you handle this thing the right way. She starts it, and I finish it. So for now... Julie and I are ghosts. See ya. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.